We really want to share the details of four more Placer County homicides. We were going to try to stick to a more chronological order, but after we finished the last two episodes, we realized that it's easier to think about all of these Placer cases together. We added some new locations to our unsolved map, and that should make it easier to follow along with the episode and help make sense of these cases in relation to all of the others we've covered. There is another double homicide that has been discussed as a possible EAR case because it occurred in 1977, and it seemed to parallel what happened to the Majoris. We always agreed with that connection, but it more closely reminded us of the Snelling homicide and the McGowan shooting. On Wednesday, March 2, 1977, 28-year-old Carla Burkhart and 55-year-old Bill Harrington were hard at work for Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, going door-to-door notifying residents of a service interruption due to utility work in the area. Carla was a new trainee hired through an equal opportunity program to bring more women into field jobs with the utility. It was a good fit for her interests, and she was planning to pursue a college degree to further her new career. Carla was starting over after a recent divorce, and she and her two sons had just moved into a new place on Greenback Lane in Citrus Heights. Harrington had worked for PG&E for 16 years and had lived on Sylvan Vista Drive in Auburn since 1967. Just after 11.30 a.m., a woman noticed a 1975 Ford Bronco in a field next to Auburn Folsom Road. Thinking that there had been a car accident, She approached the vehicle and found Burkert and Harrington slumped on top of each other in the front seat. The inside of the truck was covered in blood. She walked up the nearest driveway to the home of James and Dolores Williams and told them that there had been an accident and that the occupants were in pretty bad shape. James Williams called for help at 11.42 a.m. A CHP officer arrived shortly thereafter and he quickly realized that both victims had been shot and the lack of any firearm in the vehicle suggested that a sniper in the woods had hit them as they were driving by. Placer County Sheriffs took command of the scene and were assisted by Rockland and Roseville PD and State Park and Beach Department officers for a total force of 40 armed with rifles and shotguns. They were joined by two PG&E helicopters, an airplane, and police tracking dogs. They spent five hours searching a one-mile radius around the crash site but found no sign of the shooter. The best clue in the case came around noon when James Williams' nephew, Wesley Williams, returned home to the house next door. Wesley and his wife, Dorothy, had left their house on Lone Pine Lane at 9 a.m. to visit their son, who was having surgery in the local hospital. As they approached their front door, they found a PG&E notice card placed between the door and the jam, and no front doorknob. They immediately informed the police who surrounded the house in case the shooter was inside. Eventually, the police and Mr. Williams entered the house and discovered that two bedrooms had been ransacked, with all the dresser drawers disturbed, the console TV set in the living room had been unplugged and moved towards the front door, and a twenty-two revolver had been taken from a closet and left on the fireplace hearth. Nothing had been stolen. Police soon realized that not only had that house been Burkhart and Harrington's last stop, but it appeared that the Bronco had rolled from the top of the circular driveway, down the hillside, across Lone Pine Lane, through a fence, and finally stopped about 200 feet from the house when it ran into a downed tree in the field. 
The truck was found running, and police theorized that Harrington had stayed in the truck while Burkhart approached the house, rang the bell, and getting no answer, left the notice on the door and returned to the truck. They were both sitting in the truck with the doors closed and windows rolled down when they were shot. There was no indication that either of them saw the shooter approaching since they were both facing forward when they were shot in the back right side of the head. They died instantly. Both workers had gunpowder burns and were shot multiple times at very close range. Police described it as an assassination. No casings were found and it was determined that the murder weapon was a thirty-eight revolver. Although he was working outside 75 yards away, Wesley's uncle, James, was running an air compressor and didn't see or hear anything next door during the morning. In fact, door-to-door canvassing failed to find any witnesses. Investigators also interviewed all of the construction, road, and telephone workers in the area that day, but came up with nothing, zero. Nobody saw or heard anything that could be tied to the murders. There are so many unknowns here, but there are two details that law enforcement has that we wish were cleared up for us. The first is the front doorknob. In public accounts of the crime, it's described as broke off, knocked off, cracked off by a hammer, and missing. The most intriguing description came from a sheriff's investigator who said, the burglars must have felt they had been discovered because the doorknob was gone and they overreacted. We just don't know exactly what Carla Burkhart saw when she approached the front door. Was the doorknob totally missing, put in place but loose, hanging from the door, or on the ground? We realize this probably seems like a really small point, but it feels important to us. There are two different perspectives on the doorknob issue. What did Carla see and think, and what did the shooter believe that Carla knew or suspected, and why? There is no evidence that Burkhart and Harrington ever realized that anything was amiss at the Williams' home that morning. We've thought of several scenarios here. Carla approaches the house, recognizes signs of a burglary, and either calls for her partner or returns to the truck to tell him. In that case, we would expect that they would have been shot in front of the house or running away, or that they would have called it in on the radio after Carla got back to the truck. The radio microphone was found up on the dashboard, not on its mount. The fact that it wasn't found in either worker's hand or hanging down on the floor makes it unlikely that they were trying to make a call for help when they were ambushed. What do we know? Carla could not have been too panicked because she took the time to leave the service interruption notice shoved into the door jam. She didn't drop it and run or take it back to the truck. She carefully placed it where it would be seen by the returning homeowner, and it was. This also tells us that the front door was firmly shut and remained shut. It's not reasonable to think that the shooter went back and closed the door and carefully replaced the notice and just left the doorknob issue clearly visible. There was no point. The second detail we wish we knew more about was the exact position of the television in relation to the front door. Again, we found numerous descriptions of the movement of the television, but it seems that it was unplugged and moved some distance either towards or in front of the door. Whether the TV was simply displaced or actually in front of the door makes a huge difference in our thinking. One thing we know is that part of the VR and EAR MO was to lock, 
lock, or set a dish on the front door to give himself both notice and extra time to escape if someone tried to enter the house. So we have to ask ourselves if the TV console was moved to block the door and or if the front doorknob was loosened to serve as an alarm set to fall and warn the burglar if someone touched it. We don't know the answers, but someone in Placer County Sheriff's Office should be asking those questions. We've spent a completely ridiculous amount of time trying to figure out exactly what happened right before, during, and after the shooting. At this point, we believe that the Bronco turned right off Auburn Folsom Road and then immediately right off Lone Pine Lane into the first driveway. This took them up to the front of the Wesley Williams home. Carla likely got out of the passenger side with a notice card and walked up the path across the front yard to the front door, which was in a little alcove. She likely rang the bell, got no answer, placed the card in the jam, and walked back to the truck. The driveway at the house is U-shaped, with the house sitting at the bend and two parallel driveways that connect to Lone Pine Lane. This means that the Bronco was already pointed to go down the other leg of the driveway, with no need to back up or turn around. After Carla was seated in the car, with her door closed, the shooter approached from the rear and shot them both through the partially open passenger window, and at least once again as they were down. The Bronco then rolled down the driveway. Our first thought was that this was accidental, and that it was less than desirable for the shooter, since the truck ended up in full view of the main road and was quickly discovered. However, looking at it another way, that may have been exactly what the shooter wanted. If anyone had heard the shots and had been on their way to investigate, they would have stopped to check on the Bronco and then been distracted trying to help its passengers. The truck and victims at the bottom of the hill, away from the house, caused delay, distraction, and confusion. And perhaps that was exactly what the shooter intended. We have a few thoughts about the nature of the shooter and his possible motives, but they're pure conjecture. The big question is, why didn't the burglar just run out the back when he heard the truck pull up or the doorbell ring? One idea is that his vehicle was parked at the house, and he was afraid that it would be identified. We've dismissed this for two reasons. One, there were no sightings or evidence that any vehicle was at the scene. And two, a car used in daylight burglaries would either be stolen, have stolen license plates, or have the plates removed. It is always assumed that someone could drive up during a burglary, and the plan isn't to murder everyone who sees your car. Another obvious answer is that the burglar believed that he had been seen by one or both of the victims. So what? Why wouldn't they just assume that it was the homeowner or a worker? Was the burglar wearing a mask which labeled him as an intruder, or was he afraid that he'd been recognized? The mask seems less likely since there was no sign that the victims were panicked. As far as being recognized, it would be an obscene coincidence. If you want to imagine D'Angelo as the burglar, it's easy to find juicy possibilities. Harrington lived in Auburn, worked for an agency that worked closely with law enforcement, and he was a Navy veteran and active in groups in the area. Burkert was a member of the Placer County CB Radio Club and lived on Greenback Lane in Citrus Heights, right by D'Angelo's in-laws and the center of so much EAR activity, and later, his pay and save arrest. If we go back to the beginning, 
and assumed that Burkhart and Harrington didn't know that they'd seen anything odd and were simply sitting in the car figuring out their next stop, then the panic was all on the part of the burglar, and that's really odd. If people regularly returned from the grocery store and were murdered by burglars they surprised, we'd live in fear of coming home every day. It does happen, but it's extremely rare. There are several reasons for that. One is that if people see signs of a break-in, they generally leave and call the police. If the burglar's still inside, he escapes, and it's up to the police to try to catch him. Another is that burglars expect to be interrupted and plan for it. They know the homeowner's likely entrance point and their own exit door or window. Burglars also assume that most people will try to avoid confrontation and will run away or yell at them. Worst case, the owner might go looking for a weapon, but that still provides time to escape. All of that being said, we know that this wasn't an ordinary burglar. He brought a loaded gun to the scene. That's a person who would rather murder an innocent housewife than serve a few months in jail, or plans to use the gun to control the housewife while he ties her up or kidnaps her. That's a violent offender, not a petty thief. Law enforcement were unable to find any prints they identified as the offenders, so he was probably wearing gloves. It also appears that he parked some distance away and walked to the Williams home. Finally, despite the fact that he'd already gone through the bedrooms and moved the gun and TV, nothing was missing from the house. Normally, a burglar who is stealing small items he can carry away will fill a bag, pillowcase, sock, or his pockets as he searches. There was no sign of items gathered from the ransacking. The homeowner's twenty-two found on the hearth may have been an item he intended to steal, or he just left it there to be creepy. So, what made an otherwise calm, prepared burglar panic? Maybe he didn't panic. Maybe murder was so routine to him that he was willing to kill to prevent even the most remote chance of being caught or identified. That reaction could have been sparked by nothing more than the clearly marked PG&E vehicle coupled with the missing or broken doorknob. The Bronco had a radio, and if they used it to call authorities, there might not be time to get away from the scene, back to his car, and into traffic before another utility worker or law enforcement spotted him. Who would chase down possible witnesses or turn and shoot someone just to give himself a few extra minutes to get away? Where would you find a callous monster who acted quickly and decisively and was a crack shot? Claude Snelling, Agent McGowan, Rodney Miller, and Katie and Brian Maggiore met someone just like that. Speaking of Rodney Miller, he was shot exactly two weeks before Burkert and Harrington were killed. That shooting made even less sense because the prowler hadn't even really committed a crime, maybe a minor trespass. Again, that type of shooting is extremely rare and should have been the immediate focus of Placer County investigators. That didn't happen, and by the time the Majoris were killed, 11 months later, the PG&E investigation had taken a detour into a tunnel that led right to Crazy Town. We've ended up talking a lot in previous episodes about investigative pitfalls like tunnel vision, confirmation bias, and anchor traps. The PG&E case could write a chapter on each of those. The first thing we noticed was the same lead investigators we had already met while researching the Lane prosecution in the Sinclair and Best homicides and the investigation into the attempted murder of Nancy. Knowing that both of those cases had resulted in wrongful prosecutions was not a strong beginning. 
we were still unprepared. The investigation seemed to get off to a great start, with both Placer Sheriff's and PG&E's own investigators committing all of their resources to it. Additionally, the Sacramento Bee's Secret Witness Program and PG&E each put up $10,000, and Carla's CB Club added another five hundred dollars for a total of $20,500 in reward money for tips. The case got extensive press coverage all over Sacramento and Placer counties, so anyone with information would have been aware of the important details of the case. At first, all of the public information was straightforward and factual. When, where, and what. However, as time went on, law enforcement theories and guesses started to creep into the investigation and slowly started being stated as fact. We suspect that the first step away from hard evidence was fatal to the investigation. It all had to do with the console TV that was unplugged and moved. That TV led investigators to two conclusions. It was too heavy to be moved by one person, and the burglars were about to take it out of the house when they were surprised by Carla Burkhart at the front door. This meant that there were multiple burglars with a vehicle, and their M.O. was stealing large electronics. Those guesses became fact. It's difficult to follow exactly what happened next, but it started at a bonfire party on March 4th, two days after the murders. The party was located on a quarry property near Loomis. During the party, which was mostly teenagers, an older guy named Ray showed up and got in a fight with a partygoer. Accusations were that Ray hit someone with a pipe, and a group then chased him across the property in the dark. Ray ended up drowning in the quarry, but wasn't found for a month. During the time that he was missing, Placer Sheriffs got a tip that Ray had been stabbed by a teen we'll call John, and then Ray was thrown in the quarry, which made it murder rather than an accident. At about the same time as Ray was found, they arrested John and charged him. We have no idea how the quarry event got tied into the PG&E murders, but somehow it all made sense to Placer investigators. We think this started with a tip from a confidential informant who was facing some unrelated charges, but we'll get back to him. So, John was facing trial for Ray's death, and suddenly, Placer Sheriffs arrested another young guy from the quarry party named Ken and charged him with killing Burkhart and Harrington. Yes, this sounds like a really messed up, complicated game of Clue. We'll skip a lot of the details and cut to the end. Ken was arrested, charged, and perp-walked for the press, but the DA asked for charges to be dropped due to lack of evidence. About 10 days later, the DA filed charges against the confidential informant for providing false information in the PG&E murders. It appears that one of the reasons that the DA charged Ken in the PG&E case was to pressure him to testify as a witness against John in the Quarry case, but Ken refused. Shortly after that, on the first day of John's trial and Ray's quarry death, the medical examiner said he couldn't find any knife wounds, so there wasn't any assault, and the case against John was dismissed. So the informant told investigators that Ray had been murdered at the quarry two days after the PG&E shootings and that the same guys were involved in both cases. However, both murder cases immediately fell apart in court, and they charged the informant, End of story, right? 
We wish. Okay, you can forget about John and Ray and the informant, but hold on to Ken, because Placer sheriffs weren't about to let a total and complete lack of evidence and a false tip clear him. They knew Ken was present when Burkhart and Harrington were killed. They just needed to prove it. Please welcome three new suspects, Elvin and Rena Vance and Joaquin. All we know about Joaquin is that he was found dead in an irrigation canal in San Joaquin County sometime between 1983 and 1988. That's his moniker. We could write a book about Elvin and Rena Vance, but we'll try to keep it brief. The first criminal charges we found for the Vances in Placer County was for growing marijuana in 1960. 1964, they got together with two friends and made a plan to rob an acquaintance of his cash. The scheme was for a woman to invite him to her tavern, where they would hang out drinking, and then the other friend would burst in, wearing his stocking mask, and rob the guy at gunpoint. All went according to plan until the victim fought back, and both he and the female accomplice ended up being shot. Everyone survived, but the Vances were caught and charged. Fast forward to Thursday, January 30, 1969. The new programming director for the radio station in Auburn came home for lunch and found two men burglarizing his home. He said he chased one of them out to the garage where they had hidden their car out of sight and was struggling with him when the second suspect put a twenty-two handgun in his back, marched him into the house, and shot him twice in the head. Neither bullet caused any real harm, and he was back at work at the station on Monday. A posse, their word not ours, that included two of the future PG&E investigators quickly solved the case and arrested Elvin and his accomplice. There were big splashy photos in the paper and lots of backslapping from Sheriff Scott. Elvin's supposed accomplice was immediately questioned, cleared, and released. Then, a week later, Elvin was very quietly released for lack of evidence, and Sacramento sheriffs arrested two other men who were charged in the attempted murder case. In November 1977, Elvin was arrested for domestic violence and resisting arrest. And then, in August of 1979, Rena shot him in the chest with a 12-gauge shotgun and was charged with his murder. After about a month, Rena's attorney was able to get her bail reduced due to circumstances, which we assume means self-defense, and she was released from custody. Rena then wrote a note saying she was despondent without Elvin and wanted to join him, and drove to the Auburn Forest Hill Bridge and jumped off. Crazy story, but why did we just interrupt this PG&E case episode to share it? We're not entirely sure ourselves. What we do know is that the last detailed public statements from Placer County investigators about the status of the PG&E case came in 1988. We were absolutely certain about who did this, but could never prove it in court. It turned out it was fine, though, since three of them were dead and the other had moved to a distant state with no plans to return to California. In case you've lost track, the four were Elvin, Rena, Joaquin, and Ken. The investigator went on to describe their burglary ring. They were an efficient team of burglars who got in and out in less than seven minutes with televisions, stereos, cash, and guns. It was also explained that investigators knew who had fired the fatal shots, but that the gun had been thrown in the water and was never found. Case closed. 
Perhaps the weirdest part of the entire story is Elvin's 1969 arrest for the shooting of the radio director. We can see that at least three of the same Placer investigators were involved in that arrest and the PG&E case. And the similarities between the crimes were obvious. Of course they would assume Elvin was involved. Except he was cleared in the 1969 case. He didn't do it, and they caught and charged the guys who did. We can't understand it, but it seems like they must have believed that they never made a mistake and that shooting burglary victims was somehow Elvin's M.O. Just to be perfectly clear, there was no evidence of any kind, including confessions. This was a story the investigators had heard and believed, and they considered the case solved and unprosecutable 11 years after the murders. It was interesting to note that supporting their case-solved theory were significant guesses that had been transformed to facts and facts that had been embellished. To quote a lead investigator, the house was ransacked so extensively that two to four burglars were involved. That's not even passable conjecture, let alone an actionable lead. Investigators also concluded that the Bronco had been pushed down the driveway because it was blocking the suspect's vehicle, which is nonsensical since it was a double driveway. However, this supported their theory of multiple suspects planning to take the console TV. Over the years, investigators had also concluded that Carla Burkhart had seen the displaced TV and the suspects through the open front door. She then ran back to the truck and the two were shot trying to drive away. The door was closed. We know that because the notice was still in the jam, just as Carla left it. We know the truck wasn't moving since the shooter was able to reach in and shoot them both multiple times, close enough to leave powder burns. Also, neither of the victims was looking back behind the truck or had time to raise their hands in defense. There is no evidence to support that version of events, yet at some point it started being treated as the known facts of the case. We've seen the same type of migration of facts time and time again, and it's always when investigators are trying to change small details to fit their suspect or theory of the case instead of following the evidence. There is no reason that this case can't be solved. We've noticed that the stories about the anniversary of the murders all had the same exact information. Placer County investigators said they knew who did it and were just working to prove it. They gave specific details about three men and one woman, even stating that they knew who the shooter was. Free piece of advice. Don't say any of that if you want to maintain public interest in an unsolved case and get new tips. But see, that's the problem with confirmation bias. The investigators really didn't want to hear anything unless it fit their theory of the case, and they conveyed that message to the public, clearly and repeatedly. Our first thought here is a new plea to the public for information. This should include not only the PG&E murders, but other criminal activity in the area from 1976 to 79, especially ransackings, cat burglaries, prowlings, and sexual assaults. There could be clues in those old case reports, or even evidence stashed away somewhere. It's impossible to overstate how much valuable information and assistance we've received from podcast listeners. We know Placer County could benefit from additional tips and reminders about cases from people who lived in Granite Bay. 
Next, we would go back through all of the original reports and figure out exactly who worked the scene area on the first day. Is there any chance that the shooter showed up to assist with the search? We're thinking about an Auburn PD officer, but it could be anyone that was slightly out of place or arrived really quickly. Talk to any investigators who remember that day and as many original witnesses as possible. Don't ask if they saw any suspicious people or vehicles. Ask about everything they remember, no matter how small. We know that they have ballistics evidence in the case. Has it been specifically compared to every VR, EAR, and ONS shooting? We feel it's unlikely that D'Angelo reused the same weapon, but it's worth double-checking. It would also be useful to follow up on any possible connections between D'Angelo and the victims. Did his path have reason to cross with Harrington and Auburn, or Burkhart and Citrus Heights? Seriously, Placer County has to have some retired investigators willing to volunteer their time to this work. We don't believe that these murders, or any of the other unsolved cases we're covering, are truly cold. There are still living, breathing people whose pain would be eased with answers and accountability. Additionally, as we just can't say enough, many of the murder charges against D'Angelo are entirely circumstantial. Everything we learned about his movements, M.O., and crimes adds weight to the current prosecutions and future charges. It's not a waste of time or energy to the survivors and victims' families. We want to end with one final observation. Placer investigators offered one other piece of weight to their theory that the case was solved. Quote, The burglary of that home was the last in a rash of similar break-ins that had plagued the neighborhood. It's true that there had been a rash of ransacking burglaries in the Lone Pine neighborhood prior to the day of the homicides. Not the TV and stereo, seven-minute in-and-out gang type, but rather the kind with a lot of upset drawers in the bedrooms, and only guns and items of little value stolen, including a burglary at the home of Reverend Wilfong, who said he had trouble sleeping at night, wondering if the thirty-eight revolver used in the murders was his. Reverend Wolfong's reaction was not the norm in the neighborhood. Two days after the murders, the Sacramento Bee ran a story titled, Residents Load Guns at Sight of PG&E Killings. There are locked doors, secured windows, and loaded guns in the peaceful woodland residential area where two Pacific Gas and Electric Company workers were killed in ambush. When the burglars, deputies are convinced that there was more than one, struck the Williams home Wednesday, the neighborhood was virtually empty. The only person within earshot was William's uncle, James F. Williams, whose home sits just over a small hill. He said the killings put everybody on pins and needles. Two or three months ago, he said, we had five burglaries in the neighborhood in one day. His own home, he noted, was broken into a little more than a year ago. I don't mind telling you that if I got a chance, I'd plug him, Williams said of the burglars. On September 28, 1977, the Auburn Journal had an update. Burglars hit homes near murder scene. A burglary in the Walden Woods area near Folsom Lake raised the eyebrows of Placer County Sheriff's Department this week because it is next door to where two PG&E employees were shot and killed last March. A sheriff's report indicated thieves broke open the front door on the James William home between noon and 3 p.m. last Thursday. Williams is the uncle of Wes Williams. 
it had been speculated the two utility workers were killed after they interrupted a burglary at the West Williams residence. According to a sheriff's report, last Thursday's burglary netted the crooks a handgun and some costume jewelry. <laughs>